We are on this subject today that we're going to talk about our compassion in, in the scope of being on target. Uh, 60 years ago, if you were going to compile a list of the most inspirational people uh, around the world, uh, at the top of that list, or at least near the top of that list, would undoubtedly be the name of Albert Schweitzer. Uh, the, the book here next to me was given to me by one of my grandmother's dear friends, Alice Dufendock, when I was about 12 or 13 years old. It was inspirational to me then. The story is still inspirational to me today. Schweitzer was a theologian, scientist, philosopher, physician, university professor, humanitarian, musician, and so much more. Before the age of 30, he had earned international reputation as a um, scholar and also as an organist. But in 1913, about at the age of 38, he left all of that behind, all of that notoriety, all of that opportunity behind, and he went to what was then equatorial, or French equatorial Africa, just south of the Equator, and in a rundown chicken coop, started a, a clinic. In the first month that he and his wife were there, he treated more than 2,000 people that came far and wide to find medical assistance under his care. In 1952, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work, for that clinic had grown into a, a medical station and then into a hospital. And with all the money that he received with the Nobel Prize, he reinvested that into his work. The hospital became bigger. He started a leper colony. Some would disagree with his theological views. I would be one of those. I, I, I wouldn't come to the same conclusions in everything that Dr. Albert Schweitzer did. But no one, no one could question his humble servant-like heart. The best word to describe his motivation for the work that consumed his life is compassion. That's generally true that we admire and sometimes fear a person of power. But our greatest respect and our highest esteem is reserved for a person who is moved by compassion. Now, I, I really think we need a clear picture of what that is. What, what do we mean when we talk about compassion? Too often, we in our culture use it interchangeably with the word love. But the Bible doesn't do that. It is not used synonymously. I, I love this passage that Paul writes to the church in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 3, he, he writes this uh, message. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Now, I like to think of this passage as the Christian's work clothes. These virtues are what we wear on a daily basis as we serve Christ and we serve others. Notice, Paul says, clothe yourself with compassion. And he goes through the other virtues. And then he says, and over all these virtues, put on love. Both compassion and love are vital to the Christian work. But they are not synonymous. Love 
Agape love, God's love, is seeking the highest possible good for another. Now, we talked about this last week. Um, that love begins as a decision of the mind and a decision of the will. It is far more intellectual than it is emotional. It is a love that we measure by our ability to communicate with God, by our commitment to God, and our willingness to be obedient to God. It doesn't grow out of feelings, although feelings will come after the decision is made. Compassion, on the other hand, while being an act of love, flows out of the depths of our feelings. It's actually a really popular word today. Google compassion and you'll come up with some 80 million results. Now, I didn't go through all those this week, uh, just so you know, but it, it covers everything from sponsoring a child through Compassion International to Compassion Books and Compassion Quotes and Stories and Pictures. There's even a statue depicting compassion in the American Pavilion at Disney's Epcot theme park. But what exactly is compassion? Our English word is derived from the Latin, which means co-suffering, in, in which sympathy and empathy come together to help meet a person's need. But in the Bible, in the Greek of the New Text, Testament, it, the, the word compassion grows out of the word for our inner body parts. Our heart, our lungs, our liver, our kidneys, our intestines. The word is splagna, and it describes all of these organs where we feel our deepest feelings and emotions. Have you ever, have you ever felt that lump in your throat? Have, have you ever felt the pounding of your heart within your chest? Have you ever had one of those occasions where it felt like somebody just punched you in the gut and you were so moved by those feelings? You were so taken by that feeling that you couldn't help but do something. You, you just had to respond. You were compelled to get in there and make a difference. You, you, you ignore your reservations. You, you ignore your rational objections. And you react in the moment with the feelings and emotions that come from deep within you. It means to park your brain in neutral and respond from the kind-hearted mercy demanded by the moment. It is an intense feeling, one that cannot be ignored. And most often when we find this word splagna translated in the New International Version, it's translated into our English language as pity. But that word cannot begin to capture the magnitude of this virtue that we call compassion. So in light of that incredible biblical concept, there are a few questions that I think deserve some, some honest answers this morning. The first one is this. Why is compassion so important? Why get all, all uh, excited about this word compassion? Simply put, compassion is a part of the character of God. You know, if you knew nothing else about it, that's enough to know. Romans chapter 9, the apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Well, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Compassion is generated by the person who is responding, not by the person who has the need. It wasn't our desperate situation that suddenly made God compassionate. 
God was compassionate. It was a part of his character. And when he saw our need, it moved him to do everything he could to bring us into restoration with him. It caused him to send his son for us. I love this picture in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. What an incredible picture. God's saying, you can't begin to imagine a mother forgetting the child she gave birth to. But even if she does, I want you to know, I will never forget you and my compassion for you. And, and of course, you cannot honestly look at the life of Christ and miss the role of compassion in his ministry. The Bible says when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. When he saw the sick, he was moved with compassion. And why should that surprise us? Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if God is a God of compassion, then Jesus is going to be moved with compassion. Now, now here's, here's the question that really needs to be answered, honestly. How can we imitate the example of God without being compassionate? How can we claim to be followers of Jesus, to be more like Jesus, if we are never moved with compassion? Why is it important? Because if I'm going to be like the God I serve, I must be moved with compassion to impact someone else's life. I've got to answer this question too. Can I honestly say, can I honestly say I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, a devoted follower of his, if I never respond in this life out of compassion to someone else? So, so let me ask you, when was the last time you felt that lump in your throat that pounding in your chest, that feeling that somebody has just punched you in the gut and you couldn't help respond. When was the last time you did something out of compassion because you couldn't help yourself? And if you have to say, boy, it's been a long time, then maybe we ought to take a closer look at our walk with Jesus Christ. Maybe we need to ask ourselves about our discipleship because I'm here to tell you we can't follow him if we never respond with compassion. Here's the second question. How does compassion change others? Now, I think almost everybody knows John 3, 16. Even people who don't go to church, that's their favorite Bible verse, for God so loved the world. Do you know the other John 3, 16? Uh, the first cousin to John 3.16 in John's first letter of 1 John. 1 John 3.16 reads like this. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity, that's compassion, on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Here again, the word compassion calls forth action. 
I like how Kenneth Boa put it. He said, our calling and purpose as followers of Christ is to love God completely, to love self correctly, and to love others compassionately. Now, I'm going to go back for a few moments to the example of Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel is probably Peter's gospel. Uh, this is probably what Mark had recorded from hearing Peter tell all these wonderful stories. And, and it opens in chapter 1 with this story of compassion. This must have made a, a lasting impression on, on Mark and Peter as they weave together the story of the life of Christ. It comes in, in chapter 1, verse 40. It's not about his preaching. It's not about his teaching. It's about his compassion. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Now this man came with a genuine faith before Jesus Christ. I don't know where he got the idea that Jesus could heal him. There is no picture or example of this kind of healing that takes place in the Old Testament. The closest thing to it is when Naaman was healed of his leprosy, but he was a foreigner. The prophet didn't even come out and talk to him, and he had to go wash seven times in the Jordan River. We don't know where the man got it, but he believed with all of his heart that Jesus could heal him. And what he did was illegal. He came and bowed at the feet of Jesus, but a leper was required by law to declare his leprosy way off in the distance so you wouldn't get close because it was a contagious disease. Barring all that, he comes to Jesus. And what should have defiled Jesus, undefiled this man. Now, the Bible says he touched him. That's not the right picture here. It's like he grabbed him. And I can see Jesus. Here's the guy on his knees. And I can see Jesus grabbing him by his shoulders and pulling him to his feet. He said, I'm willing, be clean. And the leprosy is gone like that. Jesus transformed this man's life. He needed to be saved from the fatal disease. That was a physical healing. That was accomplished. But he needed to feel the touch of another human being since he'd been living in total isolation and away from all of those who loved him. I cannot imagine going for a bulk of your life and never feeling a pat on the back, a, a touch on the shoulder, a hug around the neck, how empty you would feel and Jesus grabs him and restores to him that touch. And he needed to be restored socially to have that stigma of the leprosy removed so that he could move among those that he loved once again. So this miracle of compassion impacts the man physically, emotionally, and socially. And then comes the spiritual element. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, after he was healed, Jesus said to the man, he said, now, there's a spiritual obligation here because this is all a walk of faith. As the law requires, you go show yourself to the priest so he can say, yes, you're clean, you're healed. And then you offer a sacrifice to God, expressing your thanks for this marvelous gift. Now, I have to assume the man did that. It's the other part that he didn't do. Some people say that Jesus was using reverse psychology on the guy, you know, by saying, don't tell anybody, which is just kind of like saying, wet paint, don't touch. And what's your first thing you want to do is touch wet paint. You know, that's kind of that reverse cycle. I don't think that at all. 
This was an act that was moved by compassion. It was not really the purpose in the heart of his ministry. What Jesus came to do was to redeem us spiritually. His message of grace was the most important thing, and he did not want that to become overshadowed by the power of healing, and that's exactly what happened. The people started coming for the wrong reasons to Jesus. Now, through this study, through this series, we are studying the book, When Helping Hurts. There are Bible studies. Our small groups are studying this book. If you're not studying it, it's not too late. I'd get involved in The whole point is that some things we think would be a good thing to do aren't. I suspect this man thought, I'm going to tell everybody. That'll help draw the crowds to Jesus. Wrong crowds. Wrong reason for their coming. It was an act of what he perhaps hoped would help, but in turn hurt. Compassion must always be appropriately applied. It may make us feel good, but it's not about us feeling good. It's about doing the right thing. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, that old law about an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. The time is always right to do the right thing. Now, Tim mentioned tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, and it's a good time to reflect on what we're doing with those genuine needs that are around us. Dr. King also said, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of humanity, all humanity. He was right. Folks, there is a joy and satisfaction that comes only through serving God by helping others in need. Now, the problem is we often too wait for a tornado or a major fire or a hurricane or something like that. So, well, I, I, better, I better help out here. Now, you don't need to wait for something like that. Uh, don't wait for the tragedies before you start doing something with compassion. Open your eyes to the people around you. The need is great. Start with the grieving widower or the single mother just down the street. Uh, we've got a team here that's working with Brad Pontiast. Um, it's a volunteer team. They're, they're looking at our community, and they're trying to see ways that we can, in 2016, reach out and make a genuine difference. And, and they've identified where they think we ought to invest our time and energy and efforts, and it is in at-risk children and families in our community to help physically emotionally, socially, and especially spiritually. Now, we're going to tell you more about this in, in the days to come. Next Sunday, as a matter of fact, they're going to be staffing a kiosk out in the foyer that will have all kinds of ideas, some that take very little commitment, some that take major commitment in our life that would help children and help families, but it's all about reaching out in compassion. So, so I, I guess i got to ask this. When, when's the last time you did something nice for someone else? Yogi Berra said, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. <laughs> Don't wait for somebody to die before you do something nice for them or their family. They can't enjoy the flowers that you send. So here's your assignment. This week, do something out of compassion. Make a call, send a card for no particular reason. Make a visit to folks in the nursing home or the convalescent home and say, well, I don't know anybody there. Doesn't matter. They don't care if you know them or not. They're interested in having somebody come along and just visit with them or touch their life. Fix a pan of brownies and share it with your coworkers. Give flowers to encourage someone anonymously. Hug somebody 
who is lonely. Ask the clerk at the checkout line about his or her family. Tell your family that you love them. If you go out and eat today after the service is over, leave a generous tip. People who are serving you are missing being with their families at this time. Lend a helping hand, share an encouraging word, become a genuine friend because the time is always right to do the right thing. And when you do the right thing, out of compassion, others' lives will be changed. And do it all. Do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Because if you leave out the spiritual element somewhere along the way, it's just a nice thing to do. But our greatest need, the leper in the story of Jesus, his greatest need was spiritual. It wasn't to get rid of the leprosy. It was to get rid of the sin that made his soul fatal. Our greatest need is salvation. So in all of your compassion, don't forget to do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Do it in the right way. But remember that spiritual element because that's the whole person. Here's the last question. How does compassion change me? Or does it? Well, the answer to that one is yes, it changes me when I'm compassionate. It changes you when you're compassionate. ABC News reported on a study that showed being with the one you love is linked with a drop in blood pressure as well as a longer life. According to research compiled by Dr. Dean Ornish, just putting your affectionate feelings down on paper can lower your cholesterol level. For a period of five weeks, volunteers wrote about their feelings for loved ones in 20-minute sessions three times a day, and their cholesterol levels were, were noticeably lower, especially when you compared them to their peers who did not take the same study. That's amazing to me. Levels of the anti-aging hormone, DHEA, which produces a feeling of youth and vitality, are also affected by feelings of love. Researcher Esther Sternberg has found that acts of selfless love can increase immunity while decreasing stress. Now, here's the most fascinating part of the study to me. Showing support and affection for loved ones seems to slow the aging process more than receiving love and affection. The results of a study of more than 700 elderly people showed that the effects of aging were influenced more by them loving others than receiving love from others. Is that not incredible? The way God wired us is you'd think the more people that love me, the better I would feel and the younger I would feel. God says, no, 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 no. The more you reach out compassionately to love others is when you feel more vital, more loved, younger, with vitality. Wow, we are, we are created in an awesome way. Dr. Albert Schweitzer said, life becomes harder for us when we live for others, but it also becomes richer and happier. You see, compassion doesn't just change others. It changes me. What a wonderful way God has wired us. In the autumn of 2011, I stood where the Battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia took place on December the 13th, 1862. Sergeant Richard Kirkland, along with his Confederate unit, found himself waiting on the sunken road behind the, the stone wall overlooking this broad field at the base of Marie's Heights, this hill that was right behind him on top of which were the Confederate uh, headquarters at the time. It was an awful day. 
Wave after wave of Union soldiers came across that open field, trying to get to the sunken road and up the hill to Marie's Heights. As the history records, no Union soldier made it within 100 feet of that stone wall. 12,000 soldiers fell in that foolish battle. The next morning, the battlefield was littered with the wounded bodies of men who were caught somewhere between life and death. The mournful sound from those dying soldiers so moved Sergeant Richard Kirkland that he gathered up as many canteens as he could find, filled them with fresh water, and at great risk to his life, scaled the stone wall and went from soldier to soldier to soldier, all Union soldiers, giving them water to sustain them, to encourage them. He could not help but do it. It was the greatest act of compassion that he could figure out to do at that moment. And as a matter of fact, soldiers on both the Confederate side and the Union side nicknamed him the Angel of Marie's Heights. Richard Kirkland survived that battle, but he did not survive the war. He died the next year at the Battle of Chickamauga. But his act of compassion was not forgotten. In 1965, a beautiful monument was erected to his memory. On that very field, just beyond the stone wall in Fredericksburg, Virginia, to stand forever as a testimony to what one man moved by compassion can accomplish. No monument may grace your story. But I'm telling you, your life can be monumental if you allow yourself to be moved by compassion to meet the needs of others in the name of Jesus Christ. How can we be his followers if we're never moved with compassion?